Well, as our custom, let's stand and read the Word of God, John 19.1, starting at verse 1. Uh, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and put a purple robe on him, and they began to come to him, come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? And, but Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me. Do you know that I have the authority to release you, and I have the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king! So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he handed him over to them to be crucified. Let's pray. Father, um, we're grateful for your word. And I know that every week you have something to say to us. I'm not sure where everyone is today in terms of their heart. Because I didn't create them, but you sure did. And you know where everyone's mind is at and what they're thinking and how they view you. And you know where we need to be encouraged, strengthened, and where we need to be changed. So I pray, God, that your word would do its work and would speak to all of us, including myself, God, who also needs transformation on a daily and weekly basis. Uh, we're grateful for you, and we love you, and we're thankful we can uh, have the word given to us so freely without any fears of trying to hide it. We are grateful for our country in that way. Uh, may you just be with us as we enjoy our time together. In Christ's name, amen. So as we continue in our passage from last week, you'll remember that Jesus was under interrogation from the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. And the reason he was before Pilate was the Jews had brought him there in hopes that uh, he would rule in favor of their desire to execute Jesus. And they needed his approval, remember, because uh, the Jews had been, uh, not, didn't have the right to do capital punishment. It was taken away from them in about uh, 86, when Jesus was just a little kid. And it was taken away from them and given only to the Romans. So only the Romans had the right to execute and um, implement capital punishment. So they needed Pilate's approval. The problem, though, was that up to this point in their interrogation, um, Pilate had failed to con be convinced that Jesus was worthy of death. And the truth was, he actually believed that he was innocent and had done nothing wrong. And he wanted to release Jesus. 
Now you remember how we tried to do this up to this point was because the custom that Rome had implemented that they could free a criminal once a year at Passover, he had in hopes brought out Barabbas that the Jews would choose Jesus to be released over Barabbas. But that plan backfired and they chose to release Barabbas instead of Jesus. So Pilate, again, he was, he was trying to release Jesus and using all the tactics and the power that he had under his authority to do so, but without success up to this point. So in an efforts to continue to do so, Pilate then resorts to another strategy. And this time, though, it gets barbaric and quite aggressive. We pick this up in verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Now, he writes this like it's so matter-of-fact. Like it's one line and you move on. And if you're new to the Bible, you just read that and you'd be like, okay, next, next sentence, right? But this is incredibly important for us to understand exactly what was going on here. You see, I don't want you to just glance over this and think this is nothing. It was a horribly cruel act, and many who received scourging did not survive. They did not survive. So it was, it was so brutal that a healthy, strong man, like me, would go in as a criminal. <laughs> Humility is always an awesome... Uh, <laughs> anyway, that's another sermon. But you'd, you'd, go in, uh, you'd go in as a healthy, strong male, and, you'd, and within minutes or, or half an hour, whatever the time be, you'd be dead on the floor. I mean, that's how cruel it often could be. The victim was stripped of their clothing. They were tied to a post so they couldn't protect themselves. And the soldier would take a whip, and the whip had a short wooden handle, and several strips of leather attached, and each strip would have metal bone, sorry, metal, not metal bone, bone, bones of shards, or shards of bones, whatever, you, whatever it would go, yeah. And, yeah, bone shards, and even pieces of metal attached to each end of each thong. And so when the Roman would whip the person, it would tear and lacerate the flesh, and the muscles, veins, and bones would be exposed. So don't think of a belt or anything like that. It's a belt with like metal or bone attached to each end. Now, you could imagine what this would do to a body, right? Because the ground would be just covered in the outpouring of blood. And if you were an, an onlooker, if you were to get down at, at the ground level, you would see pieces of flesh and skin and everything, muscle, sinew, like on the ground mixed in with the blood. And these Scourgings would often take place before a person was crucified as a means of weakening them and humiliating them beforehand. You get a glimpse now why Jesus had, couldn't carry his own cross. When he started off with the cross on his back, he only got so far and he just collapsed under weakness. And usually in Roman crucifixion, part of the humiliation was people would line the streets and you would carry your own cross to, to the place of crucifixion. And uh, it's like carrying your own execution chamber on your back. And um, people could mock and, and watch this, but Jesus couldn't even do it. So a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene had to help him carry it. But you can see why now. See, it's important for us to understand this because you and I have often been given the wrong images of what Christ looked like on the cross. If you look at an artist's rendition, you see Jesus with a little bit of blood, sort of just pouring down little bits here and there with a cross. His, you see this white skin, which is also a myth. He was Jewish, he's not white. But he, you see almost all his old body with a linen cloth covering his groin. And you would see Jesus like that. And, and uh, 
he would look like, like the sturgeon had done nothing to him. Um, you've also got uh, movies that have been done, like in the past over the years, that have basically done a really horrific job of not portraying this even close to remotely accurate. Mel Gibson would have come the closest in The Passion of the Christ, but I would suggest he even did it, didn't get it fully. And the reason I say this is because of the description of Jesus after the scourging in Isaiah 52. Look at this. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond any human likeness. Now, Isaiah makes a distinction between appearance and form. Uh, the form would be a reference to his body and the appearance is a reference to his face. The NLT version actually uses the word face. His face was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his body marred beyond any human likeness. See, every time you see Jesus, it's the same guy. You recognize him before and after. Right? Even Mel Gibson, you know it's Jesus on the cross from his face. I would suggest that he was unrecognizable. Remember, he's already in verse 2 and 3. It says, they soldiers twisted the crown of thorns and put it on his head and a purple robe on him and began to come up to him and say, Hail the king of the Jews and slapped him in the face. In Matthew 27, it's revealed they used a reed. that made, They made a scepter for him and it was a little reed and put it in his hand. They take the reed from him and hit him. So he was slapped in the face. He was hit with a reed in the face. He had a crown of thorns in his head plus the flogging. The guy would have been uh, beat up beyond recognition. So no one, I mean, Isaiah 52 does an incredible, uh, gives an incredible description of what this Jesus would have looked like. Now here's the crazy thing about this. All the pain and suffering that Jesus had to endure was given to a man that was completely innocent. Pilate himself scourged a man he believed was completely innocent. Look at verse 38 of chapter 18. And when he said this, he went out against the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Look at 19 verse 4. Pilate came out and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. 19 verse 6. So when the chief priests and the officers saw them, they crying out, saying, Crucify, crucify, Pilate said, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. You know, you and I, if I were to ask you, do you have any stories in your life where you were punished for something you didn't do? <laughs> right? Did you ever get lumped into a category of friends or siblings and get beaten or something and uh, you, it wasn't your fault and you knew it, but mom and dad just did it anyway? Or maybe it was something in school where you were lumped in by a teacher with a group of friends that was, it got punished for something that you didn't do. You know how much that hurt, right? How betrayed you feel? You might even to this day have bitterness of feelings towards what happened to you back then. There's nothing, nothing like Jesus. <laughs> You're in, none of your hurts look like Isaiah 52, 14. None of them. So if Pilate didn't think he was guilty then, why did he resort to such unjust treatment? Why so inhumane? Well, based on extra-biblical sources, uh, what they teach about Pilate is that he would have liked something like this. He was a ruthless man, he, was, he liked violence, he was cruel, so no doubt he would have just enjoyed this as a, as a kind of like a play or like a circus kind of act. But I would suggest, even though that's very possible, there's another reason for this, and the context supports it. 
And remember, Pilate doesn't find him guilty and wants to release Jesus. Scourging Jesus was his way of trying to accomplish this by appeasing the Jews and pacifying the need for death for him. You see, he thought if he could brutally punish Jesus, that this would satisfy the Jews' desire for their need for his execution. And when they saw Jesus, they would have thought, that's good enough, we don't need any more, we don't need him to die anymore. However, unfortunately for Pilate, this plan didn't work, and the Jews wanted more. And look at this in verse 4. Pilate came out and again said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man! So the, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt. You see, the Jews' hatred for Jesus was so great that nothing less than his death would do. The problem for them was, though all their tactics to get Pilate on board had failed, he still saw him as being innocent. But the Jews were tenacious and they were clever. And so they took another approach, which they hoped would get Pilate back into their court and put him, backed him into a tighter corner. And we see this in verse 7. The Jews answered and said to him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Now why would this statement by the Jews back Pilate into a corner? Well, I want to turn you to a commentary uh, about this uh, by, by John MacArthur. He does a good job of explaining this. We have to get into Roman context to understand what's going on here. This is what uh, John says. He says, Part of the genius of Roman form of occupation throughout the empire was to grant autonomy in civil matters to the conquered nations. Roman provincial governors were expected to maintain control while upholding local laws insofar as they did not conflict with Roman priorities. See what they're doing here? They're appealing to this law that they know they have under Roman jurisdiction. See, they tried to get Pilate to kill Jesus based on the charges of treason and insurrection, but that failed. So this is a different slant. They wanted to come up with something that would stick. So they wanted Pilate to acknowledge their legal rights as Jews under Roman law to have their laws instilled within the land. And because it was written in their law in Leviticus 24:16 that anyone who claimed to be the son of God needed to be put to death, their argument to Pilate was they needed to acknowledge their laws and their civil rights to do so. So their, 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 their tactic with Pilate was clever and would have potentially put him in a tight spot. But there was something else troubling Pilate that they said instead at that moment. They had just made the claim that Jesus was the son of God. And look at Pilate's response to this in verse 8 and 9. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Now, John doesn't reveal the reason for Pilate's fear. So I want to suggest to you why this was so troubling for Pilate. And you have to understand Roman culture and Roman religion in order to understand this. And what I'm about to tell you is also supported by commentaries, so this is just not my own willy-nilly thoughts. But the Romans were very superstitious about the idea that humans could possess divine power. 
Leon Morris says it this way, Every Roman knew of stories of gods or their offspring appearing in human form. And he continued to say that the possibility of divine men living on this earth was a normal part of the first century understanding of life. Now what's cool about this is the Bible actually confirms this. You remember the story in Acts chapter 14. Let's read it together. This is Paul. Uh, yeah. This is Paul and Barnabas in the town called Lystra. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet. He was lame from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. <laughs> Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. So here's the priest of the city believing that all of a sudden the gods have been worshipping the temple have arrived on earth. And what I love about this is this is the Greco-Roman world in the time of Jesus and at the time of Paul. And so the fact that Pilate would be divorced from this type of thinking is, is ludicrous. He's ludicrous. He's right on board with this type of thinking. And so I would suggest that he was afraid because he thought, uh-oh, I've just punished a god or an offspring of a god, and will he take revenge on me for what I've done? Because I thought he was a mere man, and oh my goodness, what have I done? I've discouraged a god who has the power to basically destroy me. <laughs> right? I think that's what he was fearful of. So it's no wonder why in verse 9 then, John records that Pilate went back to Jesus to find out where he was from, right? He says, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. It's interesting that Jesus' response was to stay silent. Now why would this be? Well, perhaps it was because Jesus already told him where he was from in verse 36. He said, my kingdom is not of this world, and I, don't, I have a different realm. Or perhaps, or perhaps because the Jews actually... Sorry, Pilate didn't actually care where he's from in terms of that he wasn't really a seeker of truth. So he was asking the question, but he's not really a seeker of truth, so what, what, what Jesus answers is irrelevant to him. So I, I, don't, I don't know what the answer is to that for why Jesus stayed silent. But uh, those are some suggestions anyway. If you have your own, you can let me know in dialogue. Whatever the reason, though, Pilate was clearly irritated by Jesus' lack of response because he begins to pull rank, pull rank on Jesus. We pick this up in verse 10 and 11. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless you've been granted from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. See, Jesus' answer to Pilate was powerful because even though Pilate didn't understand it, um, he had to process this. See, as the governor of Judea, Pilate knew, um, had no doubt believed that he had the authority over Jesus as a Jew. And he probably believed, or he knew he believed, that he had the power to ultimately control Jesus' destiny. And from the outside looking in, that sure seemed the way with Jesus standing there beaten to a pulp. But Jesus made it clear to Pilate, the only reason why you're in this position, Pilate, is because 
my Father basically in heaven has given you that authority. You may think you've decided my fate, but it's actually him that's allowed this to happen. He's permitted it to be, to be this way. Now, from Jesus' standpoint, Pilate was guilty for what he'd done. But interestingly enough, he wasn't as guilty as Caiaphas the high priest. Did you pick this up in verse 11? He says, for this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. The greater sin. So Pilate's guilty, but Caiaphas, who's the one who, who brought him before Pilate, is actually guilty of a greater sin. Now, why would this be? Well, I suggest two reasons. First, uh, Caiaphas had more interaction with and knew more about Jesus than Pilate did. He had bore, bore first-hand witness to the overwhelming evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. He had heard about what Jesus had taught. He'd heard Jesus' claims about himself through the three years of his ministry. And he'd seen the results of Jesus' miracles. I mean, he knew that Lazarus, not too long ago, had been raised from the dead. And he still hadn't believed. So there was accountability for Caiaphas over Pilate. Pilate didn't know about Lazarus. Pilate didn't know what Jesus taught. But Caiaphas did. Secondly, it was Caiaphas and not Pilate that initiated the rest of Jesus. They went to Pilate and said, here's what we're up to. We want you to try him. The only reason why Pilate was in this jam in the first place is because Caiaphas orchestrated it all. So as a result, God saw him as being more guilty of a greater sin than Pilate. But this raises an interesting question for us as Christians. We learn something here with regards to how God views sin. See, I've often heard people say something like this, and you maybe maybe, maybe even said this yourself, all sin is equal in God's eyes. Have you ever heard that? All sin is equal in God's eyes. Well, according to this, that's not true. If that's true, he would say, Pilate and Caiaphas, you're on the same playing field. So I wanted to talk about this a little bit to help you understand what's true about that statement and what's false about that statement. So what's true about the statement, all sin is equal in God's eyes, it doesn't matter. Here's what's true about that. All sin is equal to, in God's eyes in terms of it separates us from a relationship with God. All sin is equal in that way. We start off as sinners and we need to be reconciled to God. So it's equal in that way. It doesn't matter whether you've gossiped or lied or committed murder, it will separate you from God. It's also true that all sin is equal in God's eyes in that the need for the cross is there. So the cross is needed for all human beings regardless of the level of sin you've committed. So whether you've been disobedient to your parents or, you, or you've committed adultery, in God's eyes you need the cross for, and, and God's forgiveness through the cross. So all sin is equal in that way. However, all sin is not equal in terms of the de degrees of punishment required for it um, in the afterlife in the afterlife. And if you're an Old Testament uh, Jew, not in the present life. So let me give you some examples of the afterlife and the present life. If you, with, so in the New Testament, the cross covers all the sin, but in the Old Testament, God had degrees of punishment. I'll give you an example. In the category of stealing in the Old Testament, if you were a Jew and you stole from a fellow Jew material things like livestock or, or gold or silver, you would have restitution to pay, and it'd be like, I forget, I'd have to look it up, but it was like something like fivefold or fourfold or something like that, but you'd have to pay back plus extra. But you'd be able to maintain your life. But if you're guilty of stealing another person, in other words, kidnapping, you're to be executed. 
So in the category of stealing, steal material goods, you're, you pay restitution, steal another person, which is like the slavery, and people would walk into countries, steal people, basically kidnap them, bring them into other countries to work for them, you'd be executed in God's law. Take the category of sex. In the category of sex, if you were not married, if you had consensual sex with a male and female, so premarital sex, uh, God would allow you to live. But he'd say to the man, you took that girl's virginity, so I've got two things for you to consider. One, you're not getting out of this financially, you're still paying the full dowry to the, to the, the girl's dad. So you're still paying the full dowry, and I actually now want you to marry her as well. The only time you couldn't marry her is if the father of the girl said, Nuh-uh, I don't want this critter in my family, and uh, he's out of here. But he was still responsible for paying. So as a man, you could not have any premarital sex without God having to pay for her. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome for those, for those of you who have daughters in this family? If you want to have sex with my daughter, pay up. But then you got to marry her too. That would change a lot of uh, things in our culture. I'm sure that's a dialogue uh, waiting to happen here. <laughs> so we can just break down and talk about that if you want. Aren't you glad you have a voice? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Be a rich man. All right. But let's consider, so now why don't we do this? Why isn't there the degrees of punishment here and now? Because Jesus fulfilled the law on the cross. So all those punishments, no matter the severity, fell on Jesus' back. And that's why when uh, the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 could have been stoned, according to Jewish law, Jesus showed mercy on her. Because she, if according to her, him, he's, he's taking care of the need for that law to be carried out. How about in the afterlife, though? Even with the cross, what about the degrees of punishment? It's a very fascinating Fascinating verse in Luke chapter 10. This is Jesus speaking to the 70. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe off from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day for Sodom than it will be for you. And any of you who know the history of Sodom and Gomorrah, think about that. Think about that. Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long time ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more t bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. Whoever rejects me, rejects me who sent me. There's accountability to God, to the unbelieving world when they die. There's different degrees of punishment, which means that in hell, hell will have different varying degrees of punishment according to however God sees fit. I have absolutely no clue what this looks like and how he determines this. But don't think everybody's at the same level in hell. There's clearly different degrees of punishment handed out. If, he, if Jesus himself is saying it's going to be more bearable for one group than the other. They're going to the same place, but there's more bearable. But in heaven, there's also more rewards for people as well than others. And again, I don't... Uh, I'm not going to talk about this at this moment. These are dialogue kind of questions. 
But I have a suggestion for what's going on here in terms of punishment and why this would be. And this is my thoughts. I, I, and it kind of comes, actually, I, I shape it from Luke 10 and from what's going on with Pilate and Caiaphas and the Jews and Jesus and all this. But it seems, so, I, yeah, anyway, so there's more for me to learn here, but take it for what it's worth. It seems, though, that the more your sin impacts another person, the more effect it has another person, God gets more angry towards it. So the more it violates someone else, the more angry God gets towards this. Second category, the more knowledge and understanding you have of God, like through salvation and Christian way of life, and choose to reject it, seems to incur more condemnation, according to Luke 10. So but people always, in your evangelism, people always worry, what about those who don't hear, know about Jesus and haven't heard about God? Well, this, I would say, don't worry about that. Let God deal with that, because he's a righteous judge. Let's just worry about you right now, because I'm telling you the truth, and you're rejecting me. So it's actually more worse for you for having, you should have wished you never met me, because this conversation we're having is going to make you more accountable to God. Okay, I wouldn't say it that way, but that's the big premise of the conversation, right? Anyway, these are things to think about. So there seems to be, the more you sin impacts another, and the more understanding you have, but choose to reject, incurs more condemnation. So let's get back to the passage here. So despite all the Jews' tactics to get Pilate on board with executing Jesus, all had failed. Even after they tried to convince him that he needed to fulfill his obligation to them to allow them to carry out their civil rights under Roman authority, it still failed. Because in verse 12, Pilate still wants to release Jesus. So the Jews now decide to fight a bit dirtier. They want to put an end to this charade and this game. And so they say something to Pilate that uh, ultimately sways him. Look at verse 12. If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Here's the ironic thing about the Jews' statement. The very thing they were accusing Jesus of, they were guilty of themselves. We talked about the irony in last week's sermon, about all the the hypocrisy and stuff of religion. Here's another one. These guys weren't friends of Caesar. They weren't friends of Caesar. They hated Caesar. They hated Rome. You know, proof in point? How did they treat their own Jewish tax collectors, and why did they treat them that way? Remember, Rome collected taxes from the Jewish people. Jews who needed jobs to go work for the Romans. And how were the religious leaders teaching the tax collectors that would sign up to work for Rome? They hated them. They hated them. They said, you're, you're like a, you're like a two, two categories in the Bible. Sinner and tax collector. Sinner and tax collector. Tax collector was in his own category outside of sinner. The Jews hated them. Jews hated tax collectors because they worked for Rome, because they were, quote-unquote, friends of Caesar. Here's the religious leaders. They wouldn't even enter into a tax collector's house or even have anything to do with them, and yet here they're accusing Jesus of being a friend of Caesar, and they're no friends of Caesar. It's, it's just unbelievable. It's another category of religious hypocrisy we talked about last week. But anyway, so here they are accusing Jesus of or Pilate then of being no friend of Caesar's if, uh, if, he, if he does this. So what happens? Caesar, or Sir Caesar, Pilate ultimately bends and falls to their, to their threats. 
Now the fact that Jews would potentially report to Caesar that he was unwilling to execute a man who claimed to be a king under Roman rule and a potential insurrectionist, insurrectionist was too much for him because Caesar at the time was Tiberius. And Tiberius, according to extra-biblical sources, was a man who Pilate already didn't have a good rapport with. Um, according, he, he ticked off a Tiberius through some, some decisions he'd made in Judea up to this point, and uh, he was already on thin ice. And Tiberius was known for being an exacting and ruthless man. And so Pilate didn't want to get on his bad side once again. And all of this led him to basically bend to the Jewish desire to execute Jesus. We'll, we'll finish with the last three verses. He says there, Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, it was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. I want to leave you with something to think about before we leave today. And it gets back to this idea of uh, scourging because we're going to talk about crucifixion next week because it's next, or actually in January because that'll be January's sermon. The next two weeks will be, uh, we'll, we'll be taking a break from John. But when you and I think about what Jesus did in order to save us from sin, you and I often think of only the crucifixion. Right? And I realize that without the death and resurrection, uh, there is no gospel. Right? If Jesus wasn't pinned to a cross, didn't die, and wasn't resurrected, there would be no gospel message for us to preach about. You and I would die with our sins still attached to our backs. So in no way, in no way, hear me clearly, am I minimizing the cross and the need for it. It's, it's absolutely necessary for salvation. However, <laughs> probably a lot of us don't put too much thought into the brutal flogging that Jesus received as part of our sins payment. You see, God could have done this. He could have orchestrated the events that Pilate didn't get, or Pilate wouldn't have been allowed to scourge Jesus, and it would have been a trial straight to the cross. That would have been permitted in God's eyes. But he allowed it to happen. So the question is why? If God has the power to orchestrate, like he said here, you have no authority over me unless it's been granted to you. So why didn't God grant him a missing of the scourging? Why go through it? Well, there is, I don't know if there's an answer per se in the text, but I would suggest this is all part of showing you a picture of how much God detests sin. How much God detests sin. It gives us a vivid picture of what sin costs God. And I think it's a tragedy if we miss this. He had to give him the most incredible suffering and, 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 the, and this violence to show you how much of a payment sin really means to the Lord. And it's a vivid illustration of this, uh, thinking through God's eyes what this would mean to him. I think it's a tragedy for us to miss this. And this, I mean, and the scourging would have been so bad, remember that Jesus had, didn't have to have his legs broken that day on the day of Passover. The reason is, why do you think so? Because he was so weak from the scourging that he had nothing left to fight with from the cross, and within a few hours he was dead. All the other men on the cross that day were able to survive the crucifixion and had to have their legs broken so they wouldn't be able to bear their weight, and then they would just die from uh, suffocation. 
But Jesus didn't have his legs broken because he was so weak from the previous beating that he just died on the cross. Six hours, start to finish. Again, don't ever forget what Christ did for the payment of sin. And I think this is important. This, this like, spoke to me this week. You know, you and I often make decisions week to week about how we treat one another and how we operate in relationships. And we think we try to justify ourselves and get ourselves into all sorts of decisions. And we think, ah, oh, whatever, you know, we just kind of move, like, move from one thing scenario to another. If every time you went to sin, God was able to give you a vivid picture of the scourging and put a, like a TV show on in your head, how fast would that stop you from moving on and making the decision you're about to make? <laughs> so you want to do this against your husband, do this against your wife, do this against your kids, do this against your co-worker, and all of a sudden, bang, this light comes up, and you have to physically see that at that moment. That would stop you in your tracks, because you know he did that for you, he did that for me. He didn't do that for himself, he was innocent. The scourging that he received was all because of his necessi necessity to pay for your and I sin. I mean, I, I, I think in those terms, and uh, I hope God uses this sermon to even convict myself of when I go to do something that I know is contrary to God's way. But you and I would be a lot more holier if God would do that to us every time. We're going to uh, have communion um, after our dialogue, so we'll have a quick dialogue, but we'll have communion after, and... Um, uh, I don't want to miss the opportunity to bring some things up first. Before we do that, let's just do a couple lessons here. And I only have two, and they're pretty straightforward. Uh, while all sin is equal to God, in terms of the need for the cross, all sin is not equal in how God judges it in the afterlife. Alright? I think it's going to be important for your evangelism and the way you speak to people and even discipleship. It's helped me See, when, I, when people come to me with problems, or if or I go to someone with my problems, or I'm dealing with someone in, in, a, in a conversation, what, when I listen to their, with their conversations and with the things they're struggling with, I can say, hmm, how does God do this? Is this a big deal to him or a lesser deal? So let's say, for example, it's in the category of money, and someone wants to make a decision, then it's a category of generosity. Well, that's a lot different in how I view counseling someone in the category of generosity over someone who wants to basically cheat on their spouse. <laughs> okay, right? Because what I'm doing is I'm looking at this through God's eyes and I'm going to say, well, hey, it's not a, it's sinful to not be generous versus that. That's a pretty big difference in category. So for me, it helps me shape when I'm talking with people and looking at my own life and decisions I make to say, hmm, how does God view this? How does God do this? And if I was in the Old Testament, how would God deal with me if I wanted to make this decision? So anyway, that's just something to think about. Second lesson, uh, while the gospel message cannot exist without Jesus' crucifixion, his scourging gives us a vivid illustration of how much God hates sin. And I know there's a lot more that could be said, and I've had a couple other lessons, but I chose to not bring them up only because these two are, I think, worthy of ponder and consideration.